Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name is Samir Rahim and I'm standing in for Tom Clark this week, who is sunning himself in France as we speak. I'll be talking to Prospect's very own Steve Bloomfield, who recently won the Orwell Prize for his journalism. Steve, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Hasn't gone to your head yet? <laughs> Not yet, no. Great. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Steve about his recent experience interviewing Tony Blair. Earlier this year, Steve met with a former PM to talk about Iraq, liberal interventionism, and what Blair himself now makes of the famous Blair Doctrine, which he outlined 20 years ago in Chicago. Is liberal interventionism dead in the water? And what else has the former Prime Minister learned, if anything, from his foreign adventures? So Steve, Chicago speech 20 years ago, some of our listeners may not remember it. Could you remind us about what he actually said? Yes, so this was uh, April 1999, so two years into Tony Blair's premiership. Uh, and it was uh, just after the beginning of the uh, the conflict in Kosovo. Um, Kosovo, of course, was a humanitarian situation where uh, the Serbian president, Slobodan Milosevic, had been responsible for essentially ethnic cleansing within the, uh, the Kosovo region of Serbia. Um, driving Kosovo Albanians out of their homes. Uh, this was, for many in Europe, um, a moment for them to work out whether they could really accept this, whether they could really allow it to happen. There had been, obviously, uh, Srebrenica, uh, there had been uh, Rwanda. Um, this was seen, I think, particularly after those two, um, two moments, this was seen as... Uh, a time to draw a line in the sand and say, actually, we can't accept this, we can't allow it to go on. Um, there was no UN Security Council resolution on Kosovo because uh, the feeling was that Russia would block it. So action was taken by NATO. At this stage, there had been a bombing campaign, but at the moment, it wasn't working. And that's, it's at that moment that Tony Blair flew to Chicago to make a speech. Now, that speech was all about really just trying to get the Americans to agree to threaten ground troops, which Tony Blair felt would then persuade Slobodan Milosevic that he couldn't hold on and it would be the end. But it wasn't just that. It was also, as you say, it was setting out a doctrine, this idea of um, liberal interventionism and when it's right for Western liberal democracies 
to intervene in other nations when there is uh, ethnic cleansing, mass killing or a genocide. Uh, and he laid out these five tests, um, which really are, are tests that have guided uh, Britain, certainly in some other countries, in their decisions on whether to go to war or not to go to war ever since. So should I just run through those five yeah. tests? So, so are we yeah, yeah. sure of our case? Second, have we exhausted all diplomatic options? Third, on the basis of a practical assessment of the situation, are the military operations we can sensibly and prudently undertake? Fourth, are we in it for the long term? And finally, do we have national interests involved? Now, of course, Tony Blair um, more famously went to war in Iraq in 2003. And to what extent do we think that he was obeying his own doctrine when he did that? Well, he would say he is. And this is the thing, you know... The, the about these tests is that they are they are not objective it's you know the person who is setting the test is also uh, marking his own homework so what was interesting was you know tony blair thought that um the tests were met in iraq uh, jonathan powell his chief of staff who i also spoke to and who drafted most of the speech he thought the tests were were met with iraq Lawrence Friedman, who's a historian uh, on war, um, who actually wrote those five tests. Um, Jonathan Powell got in touch with him to say, look, we're, we're making this speech. It's going to be about this idea. Um, can you help us with some pointers? Lawrence Friedman wrote those five tests pretty much word for word as they are there. Um, he uh, did not believe that they were met in Iraq. Um, and interestingly, Friedman uh, was one of the people who was on the Chilcot inquiry um, many years later um, to investigate whether whether Blair was right for us to go to war. Um, and Friedman's interesting as well because he says, whereas Tony Blair saw them as these are the tests to see whether we should intervene, Friedman saw them the other way. These were, these were the tests to see whether we shouldn't intervene. It was very much about like, you know, we should only do it if we've done this it's not a sort of I want to go to war can I tick these things off um, which is I think how he felt uh, Blair felt about it interesting thing about Blair when you talk to him he didn't really apologize for what he was doing which is probably not surprising but he has no. adjusted in some way his test he's got two more tests now which yeah. do seem to acknowledge that Iraq hadn't actually perhaps gone as smoothly as he had expected it's funny because in a way sort of asking tony blair about iraq you're as a journalist yeah it's a bit of a losing battle you're not you're not you're not gonna get him to say anything new and i'm not you know i'm not arrogant enough to think that yeah you know, oh yes i'm the journalist who's going to finally make him say i was wrong on iraq um but what was interesting was when i asked him about his five tests i said you know do you think they still work or do you think there's anything missing? And he said, actually, yeah, I think that, you know, there are, I would add two tests now very strongly. Um, one was um, about public opinion in the long term. He said, you know, unless you have your public with you for the long term, um, it's it's going to be really difficult. Um, I can't remember the exact wording that he used, but it was, it was saying, look, you, you, you need the public with you. Particularly, he said, if... Um, if there's a change of government and they're less keen on it. Uh, now, you look at Iraq, you know, it's worth pointing out, people forget about this about Iraq. The, the majority of people in this country were actually in favour when the war began. It was, I think, 54 to 39%, if I remember those numbers right. And some people still somehow didn't have an opinion, but anyway. Um, but there was, a, there was a majority of people in favour of it at the beginning. 
obviously after a while there really wasn't um so iraq would fail that test the other test he mentioned was i'll be honest a bit weird he said um you've got to be careful about going to a country where there are going to be islamists now he didn't say insurgents which was which was what he was getting at basically are there going to be people there that aren't happy with what you're doing and therefore fight back which of course hadn't happened in sierra leone hadn't happened in kosovo um it you know that but obviously did happen in iraq and uh, and to an extent in afghanistan as well he decides to term it as islamists um rather than insurgents who knows why uh but i think again you can't look at both of those tests and think yep iraq still passes so yeah there's something odd going on there it's interesting because he talks about uh you know islamists the way he expresses it is it and he says um uh whose very people who very purpose is to destabilize what you're trying to do it's like if it weren't for those pesky islamists uh uh, reacting to the invasion of their country, then um, everything would have been fine, which seems an extraordinarily naive way of looking at the world, doesn't it? It is. Uh, I think, you know, under, underlying that, you know, that those the, the two new tests you want to add are basically, are people in your own country going to be okay with this? And are people in the country that you're sending troops to going to be okay with this? Um, and in, in the case of... Uh, Sierra Leone and Kosovo, yes. Yeah, aside from obviously the people they were trying to get. Um, but but obviously in Iraq, no. And that was, and, and Afghanistan now, no as well. And and that wasn't a hard thing to work out beforehand. Um, it was always, you know, public opinion in Iraq was obviously, you know, incredibly difficult to, uh, to ascertain bef- before the conflict bl- broke out. And it's, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, you talk to Iraqis now and, and, you know, it's almost as if in this country, in the UK, we are more steadfastly against that war than people are in Iraq um, because, you know, the country has changed dramatically and for some people that has been for the better um, eventually. So it's difficult, but it's interesting that, yeah, he's wrestling with these things now in a way that I think he wasn't 15 or so years ago. Interesting, a, a linking figure between Kosovo and Iraq is Robin Cook, of course, the uh, foreign secretary. Um, mm. And, you know, he was in favour of Kosovo, in favour of liberal intervention. But he, of course, famously resigned over Iraq as well. He did. And in his speech on Iraq is is always worth going back to that he made in the House of Commons about why he resigned. Um, it was sort of the most sort of clear-sighted speech explaining the sort of the 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 downsides to, to the war. Um Cook obviously uh, passed away about um, a decade or so ago. Um, I spoke to, um, more people I spoke to for this article was Cheryl Cooper-Coles, who uh, I think his last diplomatic post was um, ambassador to Afghanistan. But at the time of the uh, Kosovo war, he was Robin Cook's principal private secretary in the foreign office. And he said that when this speech was made, the Chicago speech, um, no one in the foreign office knew about it. Yeah, and that's partly why Lawrence Friedman had been drafted in to write it, because Powell was writing on his own without the Foreign Office's help. Um, so they'd done it completely without the Foreign Office's um, knowledge. And the reason they'd been going to America was because I think there was a there was a NATO summit or a NATO meeting in Washington, and Robin Cook and Cooper Coles were flying direct to Washington. 
and they knew that Blair was not going directly. He was going to Chicago, but didn't know why. And it wasn't until they landed that they found out what he was doing. And apparently, according to Coop Coles, um, Cook was absolutely livid when he heard about the speech. He Not because he disagreed with the short-term aims of persuading the Americans that more need to be done in Kosovo, but because he saw, he recognised in a way that Blair and Powell didn't, and we'll get on to that, the way Blair and, Brown, uh, Blair and Powell didn't about the wider consequences of this. He said this doctrine was adventurism, it's mad. And he saw that this could be used in a, in a way that might not have the same uh, effect as in Kosovo. And of course, 9-11 changed the game. Yes, it, it did to an extent. Um, and I think also... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it did it, it did quite dramatically. And, and also, you know, you, you've got to link these to, yeah, Britain doesn't do anything on its own um, now. You've got to link these to sort of who the American president is. And, you know, it was one thing to intervene in Kosovo alongside Bill Clinton. It's another thing to uh, take part in a, in a war of choice in Iraq with, with George W. Bush. Um one of the things that was interesting to, talking to both Blair and Powell about about this doctrine was that um, they they didn't really set out to create a doctrine. They they were really just sort of trying to get through the next two or three weeks. That that was the the plan. And you know, as Powell says in in when I when I speak to him, he says you know the, the aim was to get Clinton put some pressure on Clinton. They got the splash of the New York Times saying you know. Blair tells Clinton to man up was the way that Powell described it. So that was their aim. And he says, look, we suddenly we decided we realized we had this doctrine and then uh, and it worked. So then we thought that it had greater uh, applicability. And he said, yeah, that was that was perhaps a mistake thinking, oh, this this has worked here in Kosovo. So therefore we can use this again. It's interesting. Powell also says uh, to you that these things go in cycles. So you overreach pretty much must be talking about Iraq there, and then you retrench. So yeah. it's noticeable now that even something like Kosovo, which was you know, a pretty limited operation, bombing from the air, you know, the enemy we're talking about is a pretty small country. It would be quite difficult possibly to see that happening now, especially given, um, you know, the current circumstances with uh, nativism and populism yeah. around. No, I think, uh, I mean, I spoke to about a dozen or so other people inside government now so in number 10 in the cabinet office and ministry of defense and foreign office and a couple of other places as well um and there was this sort of universal feeling that actually if ethnic cleansing was to take place somewhere in europe now britain wouldn't do anything to stop it now some people would say yes there's subscribe to the power view that things go in cycles and i think you know taking the long view you know, they certainly do. You know, you, you look back to, you know, in the 19th century, um, there was this sort of idea of uh, liberal interventionism, whether it was, um, you know, Gladstone's Mid Midlothian campaign um, or whether it was the Opium Wars. Um, and then and then there was this sort of, you know, sort of coming back into your bunker feeling. And then, you know, so it's, it's, there have been these cycles. But the moment, yeah, we're certainly in a moment where the West feels 
it can't do these things. And I think there are two reasons. One is because the populations in the West are, um, after Iraq in particular, um, don't have the appetite for it. Um, and, and public opinion, you know, you, you can't do do anything like this without without people behind you. And the other is that, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the West was supreme. It could do what it wanted in a way that it can't now. Um, you know, when Kosovo happened, uh, Boris Yeltsin was in charge of Russia. You know, there's a very different Russia now. Uh, China had, uh, you know, it might have had ambitions, but it certainly had, you know, it, it, it wasn't able to express them. You know, now you've got a situation where, you know, let's say a Sierra Leone type situation began again and, uh, you know, Britain or indeed France wanted to send troops. They might find that there is, you know, a huge Chinese Chinese investment in that country and the Chinese saying, no, we don't want you to do that. What happens then? So the the world has changed. And I think that's that's what makes it um, that's what makes it very different now. It's interesting. In a way, Syria is a test case for these things, isn't it? Because there's been what you might describe as illiberal intervention from the Russians yeah. to bolster Assad. And um, we had a moment in 2013 where uh, there was a vote about punishing Assad, not invading Syria or anything, just punishing them probably in quite a limited way yeah. for um, chemical weapons attacks um, on rebel uh, and civilian areas. Um but Obama was reluctant and Britain was reluctant as well. And that, that moment passed, didn't it? It did. Um, so it was interesting about about Syria. Ever since 2011, Britain's been wary about what to do about Syria. Um, whereas the other Arab Spring situations seem to be a lot more straightforward. You know, Tunisia happened before anyone really, you know, certainly here in Whitehall, bothered thinking about it yeah Egypt Mubarak went in 18 days um obviously there was then the counter-revolution and and Britain and America weren't quite sure to, well actually America was very sure what to do there which was yeah back CC but still Brit- Britain wasn't quite sure what to do um then there was Libya which militarily seemed quite straightforward when they were asked about what they wanted to do um because as one person described it to me, you know, there was a road between Benghazi and uh, and Tripoli, and uh, the road needed blocking to prevent Gaddafi's forces getting to to Benghazi. Now, so it was more complicated than that, but that was the basics. In twenty eleven, there was a National Security Council meeting where the government was were, were briefed on what the situation was like in Syria and whether it was possible to to do anything. And William Hague, according to someone who's in the room, said, um, you know we can't intervene here. If we did, it would be, you know, the worst disaster since the fall of Singapore, um, which then apparently set up lots of the younger people to start Googling what happened in Singapore. Um, and so they'd, it always been understood that it was more complicated. In 2013, though, in the summer of 2013, August, um, you had this um, chemical weapons attack uh, in Syria and... David Cameron decided to recall Parliament in late August. So, <laughs> but the, the moment he recalled Parliament, his chief whip, George Young, was still on a beach in the south of France. He got a phone call saying, come home, old chap. Uh, there'll be a vote in two days, for which he'd done 
you know, no work whatsoever in trying to persuade people. Um, and they they had a vote about whether to uh, take part in this action. And the vote was lost because uh, Labour put down their own motion, which didn't say don't uh, take this action. It said we want uh, UN weapons inspectors to to investigate that it was actually the Syrian government. Um, and we want it to have UN Security Council. The, the, you know, there, there was a sort of a bit of a wish list of, you know, these things need to happen. Um, but the vote was lost, and David Cameron, rather than saying, as he could have done, said, well, look, let's all take a break, have a think, I'll study this motion that's passed, we'll see what we can do, uh, just said, I get it, okay, we're not doing this. Do you think that he just actually, part of him was like, I just don't want to get involved in this because he's just seen what... Um, what happened in Iraq, and so he just felt like. Phew. No, I, I, I genuinely think it was. I think it was, it, it was really chaotic. I didn't really know what they were doing, and they'd rushed through this, and they'd lost it, and and you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to remember now because it seems like the governments lose votes all the time now. But this was serious. This was the first time they'd lost a vote. I think it was. Um, Certainly, the first time anyone had lost a vote in terms of you know uh, trying to take military action, uh, and I think they just thought that's it, it's gone. Uh, and they also probably thought, well, Obama's going to do it anyway. But because Cameron had asked his Parliament, Obama felt he had to ask his Congress, and then um, and then Congress made it clear they weren't going to vote for it, and so nothing happened. So. Yeah, that, that was a, a number of people said to me that was they, they felt was the turning point. That was the moment where they felt the West had taken a step back. Of course, we did intervene in Syria, though, um, in I think it was after the Paris attacks in 2015, yeah. fighting yeah. against ISIS. So when you yes. have an enemy that you, you know, is, is generally regarded as being the embodiment of, of evil, uh, plus yeah. they launch attacks against western cities we're starting to stack up tony blair's um uh, a list here of his qualifications then people generally speaking were were behind that intervention you could you could say that was a form of liberal interventionism can you you could i guess yeah i mean i think it's it was against a yeah against a terrorist group against um rather than a rather than a country but yes, you, 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 you could make that case. And I think that's the interesting thing about it is it's like it, it is, I think governments are making decisions on a case-by-case basis. And I think there's something to be said for that, for not having a, a doctrine of, um, you know, these are our rules that we follow. And, 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 and also, you know, with Blair as well, he, you know, as he pointed out, look, you know, as, as much as people might think he, he wanted to go to war, you know, all over the world, he he didn't, and he gives the example of Zimbabwe as a country where you know there was a lot of people saying, "Shouldn't we intervene here?" And he said, "Well, no, because I can't see, I can't see how that could work." Um, you know, the other issue is here, you know, intervening. You know, it's such a, a strange word as well because it's 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 almost trying to be quite neutral when when really when really it's not. But let, let's stick with that word, intervening. It doesn't have to be militarily. You know, there are other ways. There are other ways that um, governments can put pressure on other governments to not kill their own people. Um, 
And, you know, personally, my worry is that I think we've stepped back from everything in the last 10, 15 years. You know, I was in late 2000s, I spent a lot of time in East Africa. I was based there for the independent. And it was, you know, everywhere you went, Somalia, um, Eastern Congo, Darfur, South Sudan, uh, even Kenya after their post-election violence in uh, early 2008, there was a need for uh, international help or support in some way. Uh, And if Western nations weren't going to do that, um, other nations with, you know, different motives might. And I think it's very easy to be black and white about this and say, you know, because the Iraq war was a disaster, you know, Western nations should should never be trying to do this again. There's something arrogant about the West deciding it, it can it can do this, um, but there are there are consequences to not doing anything, um, and I think it's it's naive to just assume that um, that the you know the, the other option is is doing nothing. I don't think the other option you know it's the the other option is just isolationism. I think you can be engaged in the world. Um, in a different way. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Now, we, you know, America is speaking to the Taliban at the moment and there seems to be possibility of a, a, a peace deal there after, what, 18 years or something. Um, but on the other side, there's much more belligerent rhetoric about Iran. Yeah. And we're wondering what Boris Johnson's policy is going to be on that, whether he's going to cozy up to, to Trump on, on that. And do you feel like that, whilst perhaps we couldn't describe it as liberal interventionism, some kind of other intervention uh, is likely with Iran? I don't know under Boris Johnson. I think it, it certainly wouldn't have happened under Theresa May. Um, May's foreign policy was interesting in that um, whenever she was faced with a choice between siding with America or Europe, she would side with Europe. So uh, when Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, um, she put out a statement with uh I think with Macron and Merkel pretty soon after saying, no, we're, we're, we're sticking with this. The Iran nuclear deal, side with Europe. When Trump moved the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem, Britain very quietly made it clear they weren't going to be following suit. Uh, so I think, it, it, intriguingly, over the last three years, despite everything else that's been happening with our relationship with Europe, on, on foreign policy, a lot of Britain has been a lot of British thought has been about aligning itself with Europe rather than America. With with Trump and Boris Johnson, I I really don't know. I don't I don't see the I don't see any upside to Britain um, siding with America on this. I think also America doesn't see much upside to a military confrontation with with Iran. John Bolton might, um, Mike Pompeo to an extent might, but I I don't think. Trump does, uh, certainly not this side of an election. It's funny, those two figures, both Johnson and Trump, the rhetoric is so inflated, but when you come down to it, often the actions are, you know, Trump pulled back from firing weapons at Iran. He did bomb Syria, but in quite a limited way, and then just stopped Mm. very quickly. Um, I think in some ways, both their instincts would be more sort of cunning self-preservation rather than um, idealistic intervention. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, what you might find is, you know, more discussion about, you know, the human rights situation in Iran 
Um, but again, I think it's, I, I, I just can't quite see it at the moment. Um, and again, that's the other thing is you mentioned Trump, you know, Cameron couldn't persuade uh, British MPs to join a strike, a lim- as you say, a limited strike against Assad alongside Barack Obama, who, you know, had a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> How ridiculous that was. The idea that Boris Johnson is going to be able to persuade British MPs to go to war alongside Donald Trump. I mean, it's just it's just it's just not going to happen. Stand down the gunboats. Um, thanks a lot, Steve. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And that's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening. You can read Steve Bloomfield's interview with Tony Blair um, and much more, including Isabel Hilton on the real story behind Chinese tech giant Huawei, and Will Self on the rise of Brutalist Architecture, all in Prospect's special summer double issue, which is available on newsstands now. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. We'll see you next week. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.